Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. We are in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the fifth chapter of Ephesians. And while you're doing that, in his autobiography, Benjamin Franklin tells of the time that he wanted to convince the citizens of Philadelphia to light the streets at night as a protection against crime and also would serve as a convenience for, for whatever evening activities might be taking place. Failing to convince them with his words, he decided to show his neighbors how compelling just a single light could be. So he went out and bought a pretty attractive lantern, polished the glass, and placed it on a long bracket attached to the front of his house that extended out. Each evening as the sun went down and the darkness overtook the light, he lit the wick, okay? His neighbors didn't take long, noticed the warm glow and front of his house, people passing by that, you know, just really appreciate it. They liked that the light helped them to avoid tripping over stones in the roadway. Soon others began to place lanterns in front of their homes, and eventually the city was convinced that having well-lighted streets was a good thing. I think this is a great example about the power of example. <laughs> Albert Schweitzer said, example is not the main thing in influencing others. It is the only thing. We all know that light attracts. It's true, isn't it? It attracts, but so does love. And there is no greater example or attraction of these than the life that Christ lived. Like an ocean wave growing and rolling toward the shore. It seems that Paul has been building towards this very section in his letter to the Ephesians, which is also to us as well. It's just been building and it, it crashes, if I could use that kind of term in a good kind of way, not mean negative, but in a positive kind of way upon the, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's pick it up at the first couple of verses. Look at what it says. It says, follow God's example. Some of the translations says, follow or be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I really like these two verses from the message. Let me, let me share that with you now at this point. Watch what God does, it says, and then you do it. <laughs> like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him. Don't you love that? And learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. We're to be imitators of God, which also means that we're to be imitators of Christ. Correct? Correct? Well, what does that mean? 
Be imitators of God. How is that even possible? You know what I'm saying? That's what we're going to look at today. That's just what Paul is addressing here, what, what it really means, what it really does look like to imitate God. The word imitate actually comes from a, the Greek word, which is mimo, mimo meomai, from which we get our word mimic, which actually means what? To act like. To mimic is to act like. And so obviously there is more to imitating God than just talking the talk. Would you agree with that? Unlike a professional impersonator talking and sounding like a famous celebrity repeating famous lines from their movies, there's more to it than just repeating some of God's best known lines from Scripture more to it. So how do we imitate God? Well, when I read this command, I can't help but think of some of the aspects of God's nature. So for example, God is omnipotent, right? In other words, he's all powerful. Well, we can't imitate that. <laughs> God is also omnipresent meaning he is everywhere all at once. Don't think we can imitate that either. <laughs> and then he's also omniscient, which means he knows everything. Now, while some of us might think we've got that one nailed, <laughs> the fact is, in comparison to God, we really don't know much at all. Everyone said amen. Amen. <laughs> the answer is actually found this how do we imitate God it's, the answer is given to us it's right in front of us it's found in verse 2 very simply walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's a little side note that I want to add here. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus prayed a model prayer for us. And in that prayer, he said, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's some good news for you. When we are imitating God, walking in the way of love, this is how the kingdom comes. And it is how it is done. Isn't that good news? That is such good news. This is how it happens through love, God's love. And it's how we imitate our Lord and Savior. It's how we imitate our one and true only creator God through and by his love. Loving people, all people. <laughs> and Paul lets us know, Look at this. He lets us know that this is actually something that is very pleasing to God. He says it is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is actually referring to an Old Testament book, Leviticus, covers, covering chapters 1 through 5, where the writer of Leviticus talks about the burnt offering and the meal offering and the peace offering. These were sacrificial offerings that the Israelites were instructed to give to the Lord. 
And in there, when it refers to those, it also refers to those and calls them a sweet-smelling, fragrant offering because their aroma was sweet to the Lord. Why was it sweet? Well, it's not, it's not because God loved the smell of barbecue. <laughs> it's because of what those sacrificial offerings represented. What they represented. And so, too, when you and I choose to follow Jesus, choose to follow his example, choose to imitate him by getting ourselves out of the way, by being a living sacrifice, as we're told in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, by walking in love, the fragrant scent of that is a sweet aroma as it rises to the Father in heaven. When we live with this kind of attitude towards God, we please Him. Anybody here today interested in pleasing God? <laughs> Good. And so once again, this would be an incredibly daunting challenge if it weren't for something else that Paul said in this first verse. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children. This is good news. This is really good news for us. In other words, as members of his spiritual family. It's kind of like what Paul is saying when we became Born again, followers of Christ. God's DNA, if you would, <laughs> got put within us. And so because of that, you guys remember the old phrase? We've heard it our whole lives. The, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree when we're being likened to like our parents, so on and so forth. If ever that was to be a true statement, this is where that needs to be a true statement. Amen. That people would see us and say of us, Woo, the fruit of God's nature certainly did not fall far from the tree. As I see you and watch you, I see Jesus imitating God. Wow. So this is where Christ comes in. As we understand, if I'm using this terminology, his DNA flowing in us. And we then are to be like him because we've got his nature in us. Because he is in us, we are in him. This is where Christ comes in, the true son of God, who took on full sinless humanity. As God's son, after whose image we are being renewed by the Holy Spirit, Christ becomes the supreme example for us. It stands to reason then that as dearly loved children, we are to carry on our lives with the characteristics that are true of God's Son, our Redeemer, whom we just sang about, our Savior, our Lord. And again, since He is in us and we are in Him. Amen. He is good. What does that mean? We should be good. He is kind. We must be kind. He is just, and so we should be just and fair. He's holy. We are to be a holy and pure people. 
He's full of grace, is he not? And we are to demonstrate grace towards one another. Obviously, the list could go on and on and on. You don't have to be a Christian for very long to know that the world around us opposes God's way of love. Correct? Opposes it at every turn and tries with all of its might to cause us to, to crash and burn in our endeavor to be like Jesus. This is why Paul issues a strong summons to purity in the next few verses that we're going to be looking at, which really are an urgent warning against the world's destructive, self-serving ways. And it is a clear beam of light to pierce the darkness. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me as Paul lets us know here that we are not to be deceived by this world and its ways. It says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Verse 4, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather instead thanksgiving. Paul mentions several sins that can ruin the witness of the Christian community. Though we are called to be lights in the world, Jesus calls us that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, certain behaviors can and do dim our witness, therefore rendering us ineffective. In fact, the dimmer the light, the more we look like those who are still lost in darkness. By associating these deeds of darkness with unbelievers, as Paul does, he ex ex is exhorting us. And this exhortation that coming to us packs a really powerful punch. If you're children of light, Paul is saying, and walking in the way of love, don't live like children of darkness. Paul begins with two deeds that relate to sexual sin. The first term he uses, immorality, which translates the Greek word pornea. You might already begin to think what word that we get from that, and it's the word pornography. It includes all kinds of sexual sin outside of marriage, including fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and prostitution. But we notice that Paul also uses and refers to the word impurity, using a Greek word that refers to something that pollutes us immorally, within us, pollutes us in our hearts, in our minds, and in our bodies. Moral impurity that leads to guilt, leads to shame, leads to habitual sin, obsessions, addictions, and a life that will spiral downwards out of control. What a tragedy it is, I think, that our dark modern world actually seems to champion immorality and impurity. Almost any kind of sexual expression is encouraged on television and in films and especially online. 
Many be believe that the free expression of sexuality is harmless or even healthy, wrongly, wrongly, wrongly assuming that nobody ever gets hurt by it. Nothing could be further from the truth. People do get hurt. And typically unknown to the one who is doing the sin, they have no idea of the damage they are doing to them within themselves, as Paul is explaining to us. Yet Paul warns us not to be deceived by empty words that the world would throw at us. Oh, it's okay. Everybody's doing it. Nobody gets hurt. Wrong. Wrong, wrong. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such as a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Sexual immorality only degrades our humanity. It never enhances it. Never, never, never. It turns humans created in the image of our God into objects created simply for gratifying their own selfish desires. Church, God has so much more to give us than what we chase after in the darkness. The next sin in Paul's list back in verse 3 is greed. He refers to it also and talks about it in another letter that he wrote to the Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul relates it closely to the sinful deeds of the earthly body, including immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. So greed then includes an insatiable appetite, not only for sex, but also involves an unquenchable hunger for more and more and more of stuff, material possessions. And so both Ephesians 5.5 5, as well as Colossians 3.5, I want you to see this link greed to idolatry because greed makes a god out of what it seeks to possess. And so from immoral deeds, which is what Paul has been talking about, that indulge sinful de desires which should not even be named or hinted at, as we see in verse 3, Paul turns to obscene words in verse 4. The New King James Version uses the word that the NIV has as obscenity, it uses the word filthiness. Pretty descriptive word, don't you think? It refers to shameful, disgraceful, degrading talk that rob people of their dignity. This would also include innuendos and lewd or suggestive speech. The phrase foolish talk that we see here is actually in the Greek one compound word, and it's morologia. From its root, we derive the English word. Are you ready for this? Moron. <laughs> so it would not be 
wrong <laughs> to informally translate this verse that Paul is giving us because of the choice of words he uses in the Greek. Stop talking like a moron. Wow. Moron means fool. In Scripture, fool doesn't primarily refer to a person who is lacking intellectual ability. That's not it at all. But to somebody who denies the reality of God, the actions, the talk, all of this that we've just got through talking about, the obscenity, the lewdness, the innuendos, talk that shouldn't be talked, talking like a moron, betrays the person who says they do believe. The actions and the words are saying something entirely different. Historically, it pointed to a practical denial of God as the judge of all good and all evil. But it also refers to empty, pointless words, foolish talk, unnecessary verbiage, that doesn't need to be coming out of the followers of Christ's mouths that neither is profitable nor edifying. Of course, joking, as is mentioned here, also comes from a single Greek word, which points out forms of humor that depend on twisting words into double intenders in order to make something innocent seem suggestive or sensual, or immoral. We all know this kind of Im immoral, coarse joking. You've been around people who get seemingly their kicks, distorting language into indecent, degrading insinuations. This kind of coarse joking is typical of people whose minds are always in the gutter, feeding on mental sewage. At this point, I think a clarification would be in order. I want to make sure we all understand that Paul's denouncing of obscenities, filthiness, foolish talk, and coarse joking have nothing to do with having a healthy humor. Are you with me in this? He is... He is not talking about not having a healthy sense of humor. He is not saying that we can never smile, that we can never laugh, and that we can't joke. That's not at all what Paul is talking about. But what he is coming against, his rebuke addresses the problem of, of immoral, inappropriate jesting or joking at an inappropriate time. Sensual talk and gutter humor provide no benefit whatsoever. In fact, they typically tear down people, do not build them up. And we are to be building one another up. Amen? That's what our words should be used for, building each other up. And then it also tells us here, as we read, and also used not for griping, complaining, cursing, or anything like that, but for giving thanksgiving. The giving of thanks. We know better than to think that sexual indulgence, 
materialistic overload <laughs> and degrading speech are no big deal. We know better than that, don't we? They are. Yet it is easy to become so numb to these epidemics of our modern society since we are inundated by all of this all of the time. Correct? We are. Nevertheless, Paul says quite bluntly that people engaged in a blatantly, perpetually sinful lifestyle, immoral, impure, and even greedy, have no share in the kingdom of God. In fact, God's wrath, he tells us, will come upon them. So I think once again, some clarification might be needed here. Paul does not mean that our salvation is forfeited if in a moment of weakness we fall into some form of immorality or greed. God knows that we're human. He knows that we're weak. And he knows that we sin. He knows that. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it tells us if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So then what is the difference? What is Paul saying here? The difference is whether we deliberately persist in a lifestyle that resists the Lord, his commands, his principles, that we resist that rather than being a part of a general flow of our lives that reflects a Godward direction. In verses 5 and 6, Paul is talking about shameless continuation in sinful lifestyle, unchanging and unchangeable, even in the face of biblical teaching. Even in the face of confrontation, whether it be by a caring brother or sister or the Holy Spirit himself. Even in the case of or in the face of discipline, it's still blowing it off and ignoring it. This kind of unresponsiveness to the things of God may very well indicate that people are in fact... As we saw back in chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 3, dead in trespass and sins and still by nature deserving of wrath. This is referring, therefore, to someone who continues to be intentionally unrepentant before God. One commentator gave a very stark, vivid illustration of this. He said, consider the creepy, crawling creatures of the night that run and hide and scurry the moment the light switch is turned on. When I mentioned this last night, a fireman, a former fireman came up to me after the service and said some years back they were called out in the like 2 or 3 in the morning to a restaurant. Of course, it was closed, it was dark, and they flipped the switch on. He said, the counters were like moving. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I share that intensely for that response right there. 
Oh, did he tell me what restaurant? He did. It's closed now. <laughs> True story. <laughs> I love what the commentator, the picture he's given us. In my mind, I, I picture um, you know, you're, you're, on a, you're on a path out in the woods, and maybe you're walking toward, a, you know what's out there, a beautiful waterfall. But over here on this side is a pond that has no outlet, and it has become really, really ugly, green, full of filth. Over here is another pond, but it's crystal clear because it's got outlet. It's flowing. And which one are you going to be inclined to get into? Filthiness or clean, clean, crystal clear? This is the picture that Paul is wanting us to get. In those moments when we are gratifying ourselves in some kind of behavior that is displeasing to our God, that's what you're doing. You're jumping into that filthiness. You're hanging out with cockroaches. <laughs> Creepy crawling things that don't want anything to do with the light, but prefer darkness. Church, Jesus did not go to the cross and die for our sins so that we could continue preferring darkness and filthiness. He died so that we could be filled with him and his love and his light so that we can know what it is to walk in purity, in holiness, and reflect him in that way. That's what he died for, that we might have life and that kind of life, please. If there's someone here today and you're still stuck and trapped in filthiness, let God deliver you. He wants to deliver you once and for all. And it's just simply saying, God, yes to you and no to the filth of the enemy. Say no to that. Yes to him. Verse 7 and 10 through 10 we're encouraged to walk in the light. It says, therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then find out what pleases the Lord. Since we are not part of them anymore... Those who remain in darkness, that's who the them is. We should not be partners with them. This is a matter of identification, folks. Paul told the believers in Ephesus, as he's telling us this morning, do not be associated with people who pretend at Christianity and instead practice darkness. Now, again, some clarity. This is not telling us that we cannot have interaction with someone who's not a follower of Christ. No, no, no. We have to be involved with them. How else will they come to know the light of Jesus if they don't mix it up with us who are to be the light of Jesus? But he's kind of like in different kind of terminology saying, but these are not folks that you're going to hang out with and go on vacation with because you are not 
to continue in doing the things that they are doing. God called you out of that. He's delivered you out of that. Don't go back to doing that with them. That's what he's talking about. It'd be a gross inconsistency for a follower of Christ to participate in the blatant sins of non-Christians. The Ephesian Christians were once just like those who were disobedient. Remember now, Ephesus was one sin-sick place. We refer to Vegas today as Sin City, right? Well, Ephesus was like that in the first century with all of its immoral pagan temples everywhere. But no longer are they these followers of Christ in Ephesus. Rather than doing deeds of immorality, impurity, and greed, they should be doing deeds, Paul says, of goodness, righteousness, and truth. Christians are no longer darkness, but we're called and referred to as children of light. Therefore, we should be doing the deeds of light and not darkness as God's children. Children of light, we are to characterize God, who happens to be light. <laughs> there can be no clear distinction, I don't think, between the new life and the old life than to compare them to light and darkness. Would you agree? Light and darkness obviously cannot coexist. So a life redeemed by the blood of Jesus and brought into the light of his truth must not continue in the darkness of a sinful lifestyle. Once again, God has so much more for you. We can learn and gain in our knowledge of living like children of the light by putting into practice what we see in verse 10. It's a great verse, really. And so find out what pleases God. I kind of read that and I think of that as in terms of in total contrast to us knowing all about what pleases us. Am I right? We got that one down. But what we need to find out is instead what pleases God. What honors him? This means each person must grow in their knowledge of God and his word. Pray and seek the Lord in order to find out how God would have him or her act in any and every situation that comes our way. This finding out naturally goes with living out. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Because the, know, the knowledge must be put into practical use. Doing what God calls us to do, as I've just said, in every situation, every day. Look at verse 11 now on through verse 14 with me. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead 
and Christ will shine on you. Have you noticed that there just seems to be some people who love the dark? Go figure. Not very flattering, but it is the way Paul describes people who don't follow Christ, who choose not to follow Christ. Their deeds, he says, are shameful even to talk about. They need to have the light of the gospel shined on them, exposing them and their deeds for what they really are. And so are you willing this morning to take a stand, calling darkness and evil for what they really are, and, and walk in the light, displaying and reflecting Jesus, the light of the world, and he has called us to be lights in this world. And when we bring light into the darkness, we are being told that it exposes everything for what it is. Paul described the revealing power of light as, as he explained that everything exposed by the light becomes visible. I'm thinking again of that fireman walking into that restaurant and flipping the light switch on. Light is seen here in Scripture, as piercing through darkness. Believers are, we are to be those rays of light that's piercing the darkness all around us. By our actions, we become instruments of light, exposing the dark acts of sin. And church, is this not, after all, our very mission it is to invite unbelievers to renounce their life of sin and come into Christ's light so they too can become light in the Lord. Verse 14, as we read this here, is not a direct quote from Scripture, if you might have thought, but is actually believed by Bible scholars to have been taken from a hymn that was probably well known to the Ephesians in the first century. The hymn that was sung by the congregation for a new convert, perhaps, even like at a baptismal service when that new convert would be coming out of the water and, you know, as you understand, speaking and referring to and pointing to newness of life in Jesus. They would be singing this song as we see here. The hymn seems to have been based on passages from the, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 26, 19, 51, 17, 52, 1, and also 60, chapter 60, verse 1 are all very similar to what we find in verse 14 here. As the prophet appealed to Israel back in his time to awaken, people awaken, wake up from its state of darkness and death. So Paul was appealing to the Ephesians. And the word of God continues to appeal to us today, this morning. He's appealing to them to wake up, to stay alert, and to realize the dangerous condition into which some of them have been slipping back into. I want you to know something, and I think it's an unfortunate fact here, this letter and this passage these words are being written to believers. Too many professing Christians are passing through life just like 
unbelievers asleep, living in the darkness of spiritual sleep and spiritual death, too often participating in the works of darkness as we've been discussing rather than participating and taking advantage of the great heritage and the promises of God that are ours in Christ Jesus. That's got to change. That cannot continue. And so to be sure, Paul here didn't intend that we parade other people's sins before a self-appointed moral court. Remember that the light we're called to reflect was never <laughs> intended to be some kind of high-powered laser beam that would find, go on a hunt and search, find, and incinerate. <laughs> no, not at all. Rather, by contrast, our light is meant to reveal whatever is in darkness. It's redemptive, in other words, church. By simply engaging in deeds of light. By just simply being the light. Living it. Speaking it. You and I expose the deeds of darkness just by being the light. When we do, the light that exposes, warns, and attracts becomes a means that God can use. Hallelujah, right? The means that God can use to ignite His flame in the lives of others. In his book, The Bravehearted Gospel, Eric Ludy writes, In the early days of the first century A.D., 12 men picked up this gauntlet when thousands of others shook their heads and walked away. They followed their master fully. They loved the lost with his passion. They spoke the truth with his thunder. And though often persecuted and oppressed, their lives sparkled with his light. But their sacrifice was not in vain. And by the time the last apostle had breathed his final breath, it was commonly said of them, these were those who turned the world upside down. Twelve against the world. Twelve who chose the gritty, brave-hearted path. Twelve was enough. And may it be so today. Once again, wake up, O oh sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Father, it's with grateful hearts we come before you this morning, and, I, and we want to pray and be reminded as, as I pray here, Lord, that we read passages like this and we see words that use the term wrath and those kinds of things, and it's someone who doesn't know you and doesn't understand would interpret that as like, well, what kind of God is that? Actually, it's a very kind and loving God who would speak to us this way. Why does he speak this way? It's because it is not his desire that we continue in darkness. Because it is not his desire that we continue in destroying our lives and being lost 
and headed for an eternal damnation. That is not his desire. That is not why he sent his son to pay the price that we owed. It's because you are a loving God. And I'm thankful that you are a forgiving God, a gracious God. And so may your light and the light of your word that's been shared today bring clarity and bring brightness to our hearts and to our lives that we would say simply, yes to you, God. And for those who are continually still trapped in darkness, may you bring your delivering power. May your truth set them free. And may they find life and love and freedom and light in you today and forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.